Good morning. Could you uh, open up to the book of Luke, please? Chapter 3. And we're going to look today from verses 21, 21 to 38. This week, uh, the pastors, Pastor Derek, Jared, and Ken and I were able to go to uh, a big conference down in Louisville, Kentucky. We were actually able to also see Pastor Josh, but uh, it was a big conference with 10,000 pastors from the United States, and we were really talking about the history of the church, the history of the Reformation, and we had a lot of time to talk, pray for our church, and... um, I was, I was talking to Derek Maxson about his, his uh, role as youth pastor, and he used a phrase to describe this culture that I heard before, but I never understood it. And so I asked him to explain it to me, and the term is, I don't know if you've ever heard of this, it was a movie, but I, I didn't watch the movie, the, the term is failure to launch. And I asked him, what is that? And he said, oh, it's a very important term to know, especially when you're working as a teacher, coach, a uh, youth pastor. He said, basically, failure to launch is a popular or unofficial name for a regressive growth syndrome that causes apathy, kids to be apathetic, lethargic, and really depressed, where they don't want to get out of the house. They don't want to do anything with their life. Actually, one writer says, in short, failure to launch can be defined as the inability either from desire or lack of preparation, to leave home and begin a journey toward a self-supportive life. And really, mental health professionals saying this is becoming a big problem. Kids are just staying and not leaving, and they don't want to leave anymore. There is even this big trend that girls, while girls are getting their license, driver's license, guys don't want to like they used to. Like they'll wait till they're 21 because they just have no desire to do anything. The question is why, and reasons are many and they're varied. Some young adults don't want to move on because they enjoy being taken care of. Either their parents have coddled them, which we've lived in what's called the helicopter parent world, where parents are always hovering, helicopter world, or they're hooked to video games, Comic cons being part of online clubs and fantasy subcultures, and there's this rise of athletic superfans where people identify more by their sports team than their job, community, or church, or family. It's their sports team. So, you know, you'll see people decked out in all the colors at the game, and they'll get there four hours early and have tailgate parties, and they're the superfans. Why grow up, in other words? Some young adults are terrified, honestly, by economic realities. They called the last eight years the Great Recession. And as a result, there aren't the same kind of good job opportunities as there once were. They're low-level jobs, part-time jobs. And for some people, to get an entry-level job will cost you more or it won't bring in as much as just staying home and getting government subsidies. So why get out? But there's a third reason, and I think this third reason is probably the most uh, important 
It's widely known that in order for a child to have success later in life, there must be an inner motivation, a confidence that propels them. There are those who don't think they have what it takes to succeed in life, so they quit. They hide. They don't want to be shown as the failure that they think they are. So to launch, uh, therapists will say there needs to be an internalization inside of them that they do have the ability to succeed. And I think this is where a lot of young adults are woefully lacking. Much of it stems from believing deep down in their soul, deep down in here, I'm really not that pleasing, I'm not really wanted, I'm not that important, and I'm not really loved, both to my parents, but more importantly, to God. I know before God I'm a failure. Some people say the way you can tell that confidence is lacking is how easily people these days are offended. How easily they're hurt or they feel scarred or they're destroyed by the tiniest of criticism or smallest of insults. They just collapse. means inside they don't necessarily have it anymore. What has happened in this whole idea of failure to launch, molehills mole have morphed into scary, dangerous, insurmountable mountains to that person that doesn't really believe that they have what it takes to make it. Confidence comes from knowing you are loved and admired and that you have the strength of the living God on your side. It's believing deep down, if God is for me, if he swore me, who can be against me? You can conquer the world if you believe that. But if you are not sure God is actually for you, the world is terrifying. It's terrifying. So I'd say, my dear Christian brother or sister, you have to ask yourself, right now, is God pleased with you? How you answer that may be one of the most important things you've ever answered. Is God pleased. Regardless of what the world has told you or your parents have not told you, God is pleased with all true believers. And this pleasure, this pleasure of God is founded, grounded, and then sounded, meaning declared through one sole object, his son, Jesus Christ. That's where all of our confidence rests. And we're going to find that today in Luke 3, 19 to 38. So follow along with me, or actually 21 to 38, and you'll see what I'm talking about. This is, this is such a beautiful portion of Scripture, especially these first two verses. Verse 21. Remember last week, John the Baptist was preaching and baptizing. Now verse 21 of Luke 3, it says, Now when all the people were baptized... When Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. By the way, this is where some people, this is the beginning of the idea of the Trinity. God is three people in one. God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Same in essence. You have really, what you'll see is you have the Holy Spirit, you have Jesus, and then right here, and a voice came from heaven the voice from the Father. So all three are there. And what does the Father say? You're my beloved Son. And with you, I am well pleased. 
And then it's strange how the rest of this chapter ends. It says Jesus, it goes into a genealogy. talks about Jesus when he began his ministry. He was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Eli, or Heli, the son of Mathis. And it goes all the way through this whole list. I don't want to read the whole thing because I don't want to bore you to tears. But it ends on verse 38. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam. The Son of God. So here's the outline for this message, because I know like some of you like to know where we're going where we're going. I'm going to prove God's pleasure in you in three places. First of all, through his genealogy. We're going to talk about that. Secondly, through his baptism, and third, through New Testament scripture showing how God is pleased. So we're going to start off with his genealogy, starting really in verse 23. In Luke, we've been following short stories. We've been following short stories about his birth, about his appearance to his mom and dad, his, and then John the Baptist. And now all of a sudden, we stumble across this strange genealogy. Why is it in here? Well, there's one other genealogy in the book of Matthew, but it starts right at the very beginning of Matthew. Here, it's kind of right before his public ministry. And I think each of them have a very specific purpose. So we have two genealogies, Matthew and Luke. And what is a genealogy? Basically, a genealogy follows the heritage, father from father, from this father, from this father, for two reasons. It wants to prove a person's membership in a certain tribe specifically to the Jewish people, tribal relations were everything because covenant promises were passed from father to son, father to son, father to son. The inheritance was passed. What's interesting in Deuteronomy 5.10, there's a, it's the Ten Commandments, and it says, if you're obedient to me, I will show steadfast love to thousands of generations. And so the reason why genealogies are Important is because they show God's continual covenantal love with a certain tribe of people. And in Matthew and Luke, it's going to prove it on two different levels. In Matthew, if you go to Matthew's very first book of the Bible, uh, New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, you'll see it begins with a genealogy. It goes top down. It goes from oldest down to Jesus, where Luke goes from Jesus up to old, so bottom up. But top down in Matthew 1, it begins with Abraham. And it ends with Joseph, Jacob, or Jacob, Joseph's father, and then Jesus. And what's happening in Matthew is the audience are Jews. And the purpose is, if you go hit it, the purpose is to show how Jesus fulfilled the messianic or the kingly prophecy in the whole Old Testament for the Jews. The Jews were waiting for their Messiah they're waiting for their king. They're waiting for the promises that were given from Abraham, the original Abrahamic covenant, to David, the king, and Jesus was in line with that. And so you could say it like this. The purpose of Matthew is to follow Joseph's line, his dad's line. Go ahead and hit that again. It has, begins with Abraham. God gave Abraham a promise that through him all the nations of the world would be blessed. Gives with David's promise that he would have an heir that would reign forever on the throne. And it continues through Solomon, who that heir of kingly promises exists down to Jesus. Now if we go to Luke, Luke's different. I want to show you something in Luke. 
And this is important to where we're going. The book of Luke, Luke's audience are Greeks, different than Jews. And if you, what, what I've read, and this is what I've basically come to, is the purpose of Luke is to show the presentation of this perfect man, a perfect substitute for us, that Jesus in himself was perfect, the ideal man. And you'll see why that's so important. If you notice, his lineage is not Joseph, but his, believe it or not, his mother's line, Mary's line. It's very important. If you look in verse 23, look at how verse 23 reads. It says, Jesus, this is Luke 3, 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Eli. First of all, Joseph wasn't the son of Eli. Mary was the daughter of Eli. Joseph was the son-in-law. But if you notice, it has in parentheses, or in, uh, not in parentheses, yeah, parentheses, those are parentheses, not quotes, parentheses. It says, as was supposed, meaning we already read two chapters earlier that Joseph was not the father of Jesus. We know that. We have inside information. Remember in chapter 1, it said the Holy Spirit came upon Mary. She said, how will I, how will I give birth? I haven't been with anybody. Well, you'll conceive through the Holy Spirit. And so we have that inside information, and that's why it says, as was supposed of Joseph. So in a way, Luke's line follows Mary. Why is that so important? For a number of reasons. It shows direct biological connection from Adam to Jesus. And if you notice in verse um, 31, it says, the son of Malaya, the son of Mina, the son of Matthias, Mathatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David. Nathan was David's son. Follows Nathan. In Matthew, it follows Solomon. Why is that so important? Well, there's a blood curse that happened to the kings that followed Solomon's line, which said, you will never have an heir. And so, but Nathan was, Nathan bypasses that blood curse. So what's happening is the genealogy follows the biological lineage from Jesus to Adam, the first man. Now, this is where it gets important. In Matthew's account, the purpose of Matthew's account, his purpose of genealogy, go ahead and hit click it, is it wanted to prove that Jesus was indeed the son of David. You'll see that in Romans 1. Jesus was the, the son of David. And the reason that's so important is because the Jews were waiting for David's heir. All the promises are going to come through him. And that's what Matthew was aimed at. But in Luke, it's to prove that Jesus is the second Adam. You're probably saying, what's, what's the big deal? Adam was a true human, but it's through Adam that sin came. And so what Luke is saying is Jesus has followed the human race, and he's part of Adam's race, but because his father was the Holy Spirit, he didn't incur that sin. So it's to prove that Jesus has true solidarity with all human beings. He too has come from Adam. He too is a man. Let me show you what I mean. Go to 1 Corinthians 15. This will spell it out. 1 Corinthians 15. Verses 21 and 22. It says, verse 
verse 21, for as by a man came death. So by a human being came death. Adam brought death to all men. By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Meaning, because a man failed, we need another man to triumph. Where Adam brought sin, Jesus brings restoration and victory. It's called kinsman redeemer. To buy us back, we were basically sold into slavery by a man. But to buy us back, we need somebody from the same family to buy us back. And Jesus is from Adam's family. He's the second Adam. I like to look at it like this. When Adam came, he went to bat for all of mankind, and he struck out. He was not perfect. But along comes this perfect man who's from Adam's race, and when he went to bat, he hit a home run for all of us. And that is so important when it comes to God saying, in him I am well pleased. Why? Because he fulfilled what Adam could not. And so Luke's lineage is to prove to you that Jesus is legit. He can do it. He's the man. So if we go back to Luke, or, yep, Luke chapter 3. So Jesus' lineage proves that he is a worthy candidate to take our place. And then from verses 21 and 22, he's endorsed by God himself. Listen to verse 22. When all the people were baptized, when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice from heaven came and said, You are my beloved son. You're the one that I have chosen. Look at how John chapter 1 says it. Go to John 1, 31 and 34. John is talking about, um, remember John the Baptist came to pave the way for the one that's going to come after him. The one that was going to baptize with fire. Said that last week. And John didn't know who, who he was, really. And that's why it says in verse 31 of John 1, I myself did not know him. For this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. So the purpose of this baptism was to present God's chosen vessel to represent God's will on earth to his people Israel. And that's where 32 says, And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. He's the guy. And so I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So what the Holy Spirit did when the heavens opened, the Spirit came down, it was God's endorsement of his Son. This is the unique human being. This is the one God has chosen to fulfill his will, display his greatness, and buy us back. He's the guy. That's the purpose of the baptism of Christ. As a side note, I believe Jesus has always been a forerunner, an example of our faith. He is the original child of God, the only begotten, and we are prototypes. We follow in his steps 
we come to faith through the Holy Spirit in the same way. So I want to use his, his baptism as an example of how we are chosen by God. The first thing it says is that the heavens were open. So when the heavens were open, it represents the sovereign initiative of God. He comes to you. He comes to you to choose you. And then it says, so God then spends, sends his spirit. What's the point of the spirit? To anoint, to empower, and so God's person will be with him. One writer said the Holy Spirit was given to Christ to follow in the anointing of the Old Testament king, that he is the king, but also to empower him for public ministry. Why did God give, send the spirit as a dove? That's a lot of... A lot of dispute on that, but I think the reason is because the first time a dove is seen in Scripture is right after the flood. The dove comes to show that judgment has ended and a new season of grace has come. The law was given through Moses, but grace and peace have come through Jesus Christ. So this dove descends to show that through this vessel will come a new life, a new covenant, new grace. Then the third thing, the Spirit of God makes the Father's voice clear. In this case, there's a verbal sound. It was audible. This is my son. This is him. And Luke says it like this. You are my son, directed at Jesus. Matthew said, directed to people, this is my son. But it's the Spirit that speaks for God, the term we use for this is revelation. It gives us information we wouldn't know on our own. As one writer put it, revelation is learning God's actual view of things. I love that. I love that statement. Revelation is learning God's actual view of things, how he sees things. He sees the world. And what was God's view of Jesus? You're my, you're my beloved son. I'm well pleased with you. Someone might ask this. Well, didn't Jesus know this? Didn't he know that God felt this way about him? I'd say yes. And in some sense, this statement was for those watching. John even said that. The Spirit descended for the purpose of testifying to those watching. But I also think as Jesus was getting ready to launch out, get ready for public ministry... I'm sure the human side of him craved this affirmation from God. He needed his dad's affirmation, and his dad gave it to him. And the reason I know this is because I need it, because I'm a human. I always need it. You need it. You need to know, is God pleased? I want you to go to Psalm 69. I know I'm making you turn to a lot of passages, but I want you to go to this for one second. Psalm 69. It's in the middle of the Bible. It's known as the, some writers say, it's the, it's the silent years of Christ. It's titled, Save Me, O God. Other, but scholars will say it gives us some inside information of probably, from the Holy Spirit's point of view, the things Jesus went through growing up before he was in public ministry. And verse 12 says, think of it from Jesus' point of view, it says, I am the talk of those who sit at the gate and the drunkards make songs about me. 
What's that mean? Well, probably, there was probably rumors that they knew Jesus was born of Mary, but I don't know about his father. Probably rumors that Mary is pregnant before the actual wedding. Verses 19 to 21, you know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart, so I'm in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. It gave me poison for food. That's how they treated him on the cross. But Jesus, I believe, the constant drumbeat as he grew up, he was misunderstood, he was mocked, he was judged. Even as a man, there was cruelty, criticism, probably beatdowns from his brothers because his brothers thought he was crazy. I'm sure neighbors and ignorant friends heard about the rumors about his birth. I am sure Christ carried around a lot of misunderstanding. A lot of human bile came his way. And I think he understands us, and he understands our need to be affirmed by the Father. Have you ever felt judged? Sure, you have. Have you ever been beat down by an angry parent? Absolutely, all of us have. Have, have you received cruelty coming your way? And when it does, it stings. And if you've received a lot of this over the course of your life, you have a tendency to start believing this about yourself, that you are not good enough, that you're unwanted, and you're a failure. It's how we're wired. People can give you 100 compliments, 200 compliments. But if one person tells you you stink, as Tim Hawkins says, it calls you a son of a motherless goat, one person can say that, and you'll never forget it. But man, you can get 200 compliments, and they just kind of go one, one ear off the other. If you're not careful, criticism can warp you. If you let it in too deep, it can change you. And if you let it change you, you'll start believing that this is the way God views you too. Nobody else believes in me, and probably God doesn't either. But that's not true truth. Revelation comes so you can learn about God's actual view on things. Revelation, truth from God's word, truth that the Spirit impresses upon you, is the way God actually views Things. That's why we need to soak our minds in this. Because we believe lies and it's warping us. And so for those of you who are in Christ, those of you who are in Christ, that means if you accept Christ as your Savior, God sees you through the eyes of his Son. What did he say about his Son? He's pleased. He's pleased. He's pleased with you. might say, but wait, wait, you got to clarify this, because if this could have the potential of sounding heretical, you know, if I tell you you're, God's pleased with you, I might be given a pass on, hey, I'm a Christian, but I can sin like crazy, and God's still pleased. So since he's pleased, we don't need to do anything. That's really not what I'm saying at all, but before we get to the action, you need to know the truth. It's called biblical anthropology. Being, who I am in my core, always precedes what I do. Who I am inside always affects what I do on the outside. Works, actions, deeds display who we first are. Jesus was pleasing to God. 
The question is this, and this is the question you have to ask yourself. When was Jesus pleasing to God? Was he pleasing before or after he fulfilled the will of God? When was this statement made? Before or after he did everything? This statement was made, this is my son, in whom I'm well pleased, before he performed one miracle, before he ever healed anybody, before he raised that widow's child from the dead. That was, gee, God said this to Jesus before he really did anything. Jesus, in his being, was pleasing in and of himself. And if you have Christ by faith, so are you. That might be too much to believe because it's a daring belief. It's tough to believe that. But I, I am convinced, I'm really convinced, this singular daring belief that if I'm a Christian, God's pleased with me, precedes any victorious life, any fruitful or joyful life. If you are not sure of your standing, you will always be walking on eggshells before the holiness of God. Always. You'll always be saying, I better work hard. I better do this. I better do this. If I don't go to church, if I don't dress for church, if I'm not a good son, if I'm not a good daughter, I, I'm not pleasing to God. You can put any better in there. And you need to know that before you think God cares about what you do to, to bring his favor, it's not about that. It's about who you are on the inside. Is he pleased? Because if it's performance before being, then you're always putting the cart before the horse, and honestly, you'll never have confidence. I'll show you what I mean. Go to Colossians 2. Colossians 2, 9 and 10. Paul writes, for in him, that means in Christ, in Jesus Christ, the whole fullness, the whole fullness, whole, means there's no parts left over, the whole fullness of deity, that means of God, in the person of God, dwells bodily in Christ. So Jesus, as the man, is the full radiance of God's glory. He's the exact representation of his being. And in Jesus, the fullness of God dwells. And then it writes, and you have been filled in him. So when you're in him, his fullness fills you. That's weird. Can look at it like this. God is fully in Christ. The person of Jesus Christ, the exact representation of the Father. He's same, same in essence. Look at Colossians 1.19. Same book. Verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Look at verse, chapter 2, verse 3. Um, it says, In whom in Christ are hidden all the treasures of the wisdom of knowledge of God. So God is fully in Christ. And then, now the presence of Christ by faith is fully in me. 
This does not mean I become equal to God because I'm a limited creature and I live and move and have my being because Christ sustains me. So I am not equal to Christ, but I'm filled with Christ. I become a child of the living God through Christ. That's why it says when the Spirit of God is in me, I cry, Abba, Father. God the Father becomes my dad and sees me as he sees his son, and he's pleased in me. Look at Colossians uh, 127. 127 says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. Christ in you. What this means is that God the Father is pleased with me because he sees me in Christ. Do you believe that? And if you believe that, it takes, now you are ready to launch. Now you're ready to move on. You are now able to bring him glory through your life. He has given everything you need. Now do the works he has prepared in advance for you to do. If you serve him and seek his righteousness, he'll give you everything you need. That's Matthew 6. Some people say, but yeah, but if we're already pleasing him just by faith, I no longer need to be pleasing. I can just, no, it's really, it's just the opposite. Now that I'm pleasing, I have now been given the power to be pleasing. Every child wants to please his father. Every good child that loves his dad wants to please his dad. He will strive to please his dad. I'll tell you what, when my dad taught me how to cut the lawn, I remember my dad would be gone on a business trip. I couldn't wait to cut the lawn, so when he got back, he would say, this looks great. And that filled me full. There's this wrong teaching that because now I'm pleasing to God, I'm all done. It's just the opposite. Because now in me, I'm able to please the Father, I am now compelled to please the Father with my life. I will please the Father with my life. Every child is wired to do that. I've often heard this, yeah, but no one's good. No, no one's good. No, not one. But doesn't the Spirit of God live in you? So as you live by faith, the Spirit of God will produce good things out of you. So in a sense, because you are now pleasing to the Father, it should motivate you to launch because you have full confidence that he will sustain you. I want to show you one verse. Go to Matthew 6. Watch the argument here. You've got to watch the logic. We often put divisions in the Bible. I wish they weren't there because the Greek connects to each other. The passage should connect. If you go to Matthew 6, look at verse 24. I think this is amazing. This sustains me every day. Okay, so Matthew 24 says, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And so the point is you have a choice. Who are you going to serve? Are you going to serve God or are you going to serve money? To me, I believe if the Spirit of God's alive in you, you're going to want to serve God. So you will be compelled to choose to be loyal to him. Now, I think the rest of the passage works for those who choose to be loyal to him. This is who it's directed to. Meaning, if now you are wanting to serve me, that means you are, 
you are going into my military, you're going into my service, then he says, don't, don't lay up treasures for yourself on earth where moth and rust, wait, where am I? I'm sorry. Verse 25, therefore I tell you, so this is to the people who are devoted to God. I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, not about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more value than they? Do you know why you're much more value than they? Because the Spirit of God lives in you. He's going to take care of his son. He's going to take care of the one that is serving him. And which of you, by being anxious, which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life. If you're worrying, what is it really doing? What are you worried about? Is he going to take care of you? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory is not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into fire, will he not much more clothe you? The one he's pleased with? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father, your dad, your dad knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So live for him. Seek righteousness, because he'll take care of you. Seeking righteousness is doing the things he has now designed you to do. We, we get into these stupid arguments about faith and works, work and faith. If you are really his, you'll want to please him. You'll want to do things for him. You won't feel guilty when I say that. But if you are for money, if you're for serving yourself, you're scared to death. So my question is, have you failed to launch for the glory of God? Have you? Or are you doing things to please him? And it all depends on if you really believe that he's pleased. Let's pray. Father, I, uh, I thank you for... Um, the subtleties of your scripture, just the one verse can change a life that, to recognize how excited you are about your son. And you, you love your son. He's the most amazing person who ever lived. But in a very strange way, that same son through the Holy Spirit lives in me. Help us to see that. In Christ's name. Have a great day.